you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to take care of business in a little different way today. Normally, I answer lots of different questions. Today, I'm going to go with a theme. Theme I've been promising you for some time. We're going to title today's episode, Yes, I Do Have an Education. Now, if you've been listening to this, you know that I'm in the process of doing a major revision to 48 Days to the Work You Love. That book came out in 2005. I did an update in 2010. I'm doing a major revision now. It's going to be released in November as the 10th anniversary edition. There's going to be a couple new chapters in there. And one of those is going to be, yes, I do have an education. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I'll read you one question that I just got this morning. It's indicative of the many, many, many that we get on this topic. I'm going to unpack this a little bit, how the face of education is changing in America, what companies are really looking for. We'll start with a Dr. Seuss quotation for today. How's that? Here's, here we go. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own. You know what you know, and you are the one who'll decide where to go. Well, that's a pretty good piece to set the stage. Yeah, ultimately, you decide where you go. What you have as acronyms, those letters behind your name, a lot of people may not know what those mean. A lot of companies may not care what those mean. Now, we're going to, certainly there's a place for those, and I'll share with you a little bit about my own academic journey, which I value greatly, but have to take a look at the changing face of education today. Now, this is a question I got just this morning. This comes from Cliff in Bolivar, Ohio. He says, Dan, I just finished listening to your podcast, dated March 14th. Titled, It's Not Too Late. One of the questions went something like this. Will going for my MBA move me up the career ladder like I think it will? And your response was no. I'm currently going back to school hoping that this degree will open doors of opportunity that are currently shut without a degree, at least in my mind. Others in my circle have mentioned that a degree is a ticket into the game. What game? Higher pay, more opportunities to move into the other careers and higher pay. Is my expectation false? Well, we're going to talk about that. You know, there's no cookie cutter solution. This is not one size fits all by any means. Every situation is different, but there's some things happening in education right now. I'm going to give you 10 steps to an education before we're finished here today. I'm not sure how far I'll get. Not sure how far I'll get through all the material here, but I want to just share some things that are happening in education. You know, when we think about the unpredictability of the workplace today, It's almost impossible to be educated. Now, when I say educated, you have to kind of see that in quotations, because what does that mean to be educated when the workplace today is much different than it was four years ago, three years ago, two years ago? What if you got a degree 10 years ago? Are you educated for the work opportunities that we have today? Well, maybe not. Some of the things that we see, I got a note from one of my attorney friends recently, and he says, I feel like I have to keep doing what I'm doing to justify the expense of my education. Now, that's another complex issue that we don't have time to unpack totally. 
when you invest a lot of time and energy and money into getting a degree and those letters behind your name, then you feel like you are forced into working in that field for a long period of time when there may be better opportunities that are passing you by. Let me start with just kind of a, an artificial scenario here. I, this comes from real situations. And of course, I've got different names in here. Let me give you two situations and then ask you who you would hire. Nick grew up in Columbus, Ohio, in a family where dad was an attorney and mom was a teacher. He's never had a job because his parents wanted him to focus on his schoolwork. They hired a coach to help him prepare for his SAT. And to the delight of everyone, he was accepted at a prestigious Ivy League university where he got a 3.7 GPA and a BA in English. He's now looking for a job. Chuck also grew up on the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio. His mom was single, so he hustled ways to make money since he was six years old, delivering flyers in the neighborhood, then washing and waxing neighbors' cars, making and selling his own brand of slushy, and then being the top pizza delivery guy as soon as he was old enough to drive. He struggled in school, but at 17, his talent as a bicycle racer garnered him a spot on the BMC racing team where he trained and traveled internationally. Both Nick and Chuck are now 22 years old and looking for jobs. If you had a growing company, who would you want on your team? Is it clear that Nick has an education while Chuck does not? Well, those aren't easy questions in today's work environment. And our ideas about education are being rocked. We know that major companies are moving away from a focus on SATs and GPAs, brand name schools and credentials. Instead, they're looking at how does this person think, solve problems, lead and handle failure. Reflect back on how learning took place even 20 years ago. You spent time with the same people week after week. Depending on where you live, that may include the gas station attendant, the local grocery store owner, your parents, a teacher or two, and the neighborhood kids who were your friends. Learning took place in school with the one teacher responsible for your class. If you were a privileged family, you may have been lucky enough to have an Encyclopedia Britannica set in your house, opening you up to a vast amount of education. The choices after high school were clear. If you wanted an education, you went to the place where they controlled additional information, college. Colleges had big libraries with the books and research studies not available to the small town students. Few people had the opportunity to go to college as it was expensive and required another four years outside the workforce. It was clear that college students and graduates had more access to knowledge and information and ultimately got better jobs and incomes. Thus, the apparent causation was obvious. If you want a better job and more income, you must go to college and get a degree. But what does that look like today? I mean, colleges became big business with dormitories, libraries, sports stadiums to fund and support. More students were necessary to carry the ongoing cost of the institutions themselves. Standards of excellence were lowered to attract and keep more students. Thus, the unique value of a college degree has been diminished. And during that time, our access to that privileged information has changed dramatically. Any of us now carry some form of a device in our pocket that provides us instant access to that entire compilation of human knowledge and allows us to communicate with the intellectually and economically elite anywhere in the world 
If you are a poor child from Alabama, a daughter of upper-income New York City parents, or one of 11 children in a family living as squatters in Nairobi, Kenya, you have access to that abundance of stored and daily developing information. No longer is it necessary to have that privileged access to information, to study and memorize what few people in the world would ever know. You want to know the capital of the Ukraine? Simply speak the question into your phone and get the answer instantly. Need to know the square root of 3,456? And it doesn't take some complicated paper process. Anyone can access the answer of 58.79 immediately. This is not some gradual improvement or opportunity. This is an amazing, disruptive, transforming leap forward with immense implications for what we call education. Now, if employers know that anyone has access to the brightest minds in the world and the smartest person is not the one who has memorized the most information, then what are they looking for in potential team members today? Have you ever seen the term equivalent experience in a job posting? You know, that, that's really a nice term for saying it's really not important how you became qualified and what we're looking for. We just want to know how you can bring value to our organization We don't really care about those letters after your name if you can prove you can do the job well. The key issue is competence, not degrees. I mean, colleges are no longer the only place where education occurs. I mean, education in the broadest sense is any experience or accumulation of knowledge that has a formative effect on the mind, spirit, character, or physical ability of an individual. I mean, continual learning is the key. Today, if you stop learning, you have effectively stopped living. But now fortunately, we're presented with opportunities every day to learn and improve ourselves. And that improvement ongoing opens the door to new work, career, and business applications. Going to college is not the primary determinant of whether or not you're educated. We each must take responsibility for our own education and be prepared to prove our competence as a result. I mean, gone are the days when companies valued credentials more than competence. Now, I admit that each of us needs an education, but that occurs in many many ways. When my oldest son, Kevin, was racing bicycles professionally in Europe as an 18-year-old, people would ask me if I was concerned that he wasn't in college. My reply was that right then he was too busy getting an education to stop and go to college. I mean, are you kidding me? Now think about it. Do you think that maybe that traveling internationally would be adding knowledge and information and education that would equal or surpass sitting in a classroom regurgitating textbook facts. But in taking responsibility for our education today, we're offered many, many options. Now, don't assume that I'm trashing the idea of college, and I think it's the best choice for a lot of people. I saw it as my best option for giving me choices other than staying on the farm. Milking cows at 5.30 a.m. on bitter cold Ohio mornings and throwing hay bales in the heat of the summer caused me to evaluate my options for other kinds of work. We didn't have radio or TV in the house. I went to a tiny rural school. Our family did not own an encyclopedia set. And the little library in our town had just a few donated books. I valued the varied exposure to mechanics, plumbing, carpentry, electrical, woodworking, and agriculture gained in that lifestyle 
But I saw the life of those who wore nice clothes daily and worked indoors and knew I wanted to expand my horizons. I've always enjoyed learning. But again, my education has come in a constant stream, sometimes added to by being in a classroom, but mostly by taking advantage of the multitude of learning and enriching opportunities all around us. With no radio or TV in the house, I found my information in books and became an avid reader. Torn between the need to provide for our family and the desire to embrace his spiritual calling, my father worked both as a farmer and as pastor to the little local Mennonite church. While sincere about being honorable and godly, I saw that his career choices were not based on authentic fit, but simply on duty and obligation. His example instilled in me the idea that work was just a necessary evil, and the only learning or education required was that necessary for basic farming success. The realities of that life left little time for anything playful or pleasurable. Frankly, anything that provided enjoyment was suspected of being self-serving or ungodly anyway, which further reinforced the idea that there was no merit in further learning. TV viewing, ball games, nice cars, clothes, and higher education were all examples of useless and dangerous activities that would likely pull a person away from what was eternally important. Exhausting farm work was a matter of survival. Education, or work that you enjoyed, demonstrated egotistical selfishness. Now, despite the limitations on the things I could do or the places I could go, nothing could stop my mind from wandering. I remember well driving a little Ford tractor out in the fields, far away from anyone else, giving me time to imagine a world I'd never seen. Now, somehow in that restricted world, when I was about 12 years old, I was able to get a copy of that little 33 and a third RPM record by Earl Nightingale titled The Strangest Secret. On that recording, I heard this gravely-voiced old man say that I could be anything I wanted to be by simply changing my thinking. He talked about six words that could dramatically affect the results of my best efforts. We become what we think about. I recognized if that were true, the possibilities of what I could do with my life were limitless. I continued to attend regular public school, welcome the new worlds that books and classroom learning offered. I became intensely curious about the world, began to explore the way things worked, how they could be made better, and what possibilities existed for change and innovation. You know, I'd, I was the kind of kid I'd take the lawnmower engine apart to see if I could improve its power and efficiency. So I improvised new machines and inventions from old parts that I salvaged from the local dump. I was drawn to the biblical stories of Joshua, Joseph, and Solomon, seeing them as examples of people who dreamed things others thought impossible, and then created plans of action to make their dreams a reality. So I became pretty adept at coming up with new solutions to problems in my little world. Farming environment did provide exposure to carpentry, plumbing, electrical, mechanical systems, but I began to recognize new opportunities all around me. I could take orders for Christmas cards and experience the thrill of profits. Seeing the harsh conditions of our gravel road, I offered to clean and wax our neighbor's cars as one of my first businesses. Seeing our garden overflowing with produce prompted other ideas. After my mother canned all the sweet corn our sellers would hold, I would get up at five o'clock in the morning, go out and pick the remaining corn, head for the main road with our little tractor and a trailer full of excess corn. 
With my homemade sign, I would sell ears of corn for 30 cents a dozen and collect my growing nest egg. My first car did not appear because my dad took me into town and wrote a check. No, when I was 18 years old, I purchased a 1931 Model A Ford body for $50. Learning as I went, I slowly began to build a running street rod. The meager earnings from my little businesses were poured into one piece at a time to dry, to create a drivable car. Every time I found myself with an extra $5, instead of blowing it on candy or clothes, I'd go to the junkyard and buy a generator or a set of seats. I learned by doing, as well as by listening and talking to anyone who knew more than I did. In our family, cars were strictly for transportation. Anything that looked cool or accented visual appeal or high performance was nothing but worldly. Our cars were always black, and even then we seemed to feel guilty for having one. I, on the other hand, loved seeing the bright, fast cars in our periodic trips into town. So after more than a year of knuckle-breaking work in an old, unheated chicken coop, I drove out with an eye-popping 31 coupe with a Chrysler Hemi engine. Although a simple farm kid, I had learned what was necessary to build a car that outshone those of most of my friends. Seeing that I could think, imagine, and act my dreams into reality fueled my desire for new experiences and more self-education. Upon completing high school, the clear family expectations were that I would become a full-time part of the farming operation. It was an obligation based on doing what was responsible and to repay for the years of having a roof over my head and food on the table. But I wanted more, and I knew that college would help open new doors for me. So against my father's wishes, I decided to pursue college classes. I was still required to help with the dairy and farming chores beginning at 5.30 a.m., but I didn't let that little detail deter me. I enrolled in a branch campus of Ohio State University where I could attend classes from 6 to 10 o'clock at night. I chose psychology as my area of major, not because I thought that would be the beginning of an exciting career path, but simply because I was interested in understanding why we do the things we do. Upon completion of my bachelor's at the Ohio State University, I applied for one prime job as an adjunctive therapist at a prestigious psychiatric hospital. After an enjoyable four years there, I was again experiencing the itch to broaden my options. I had learned a great deal in that position and will be forever grateful for the psychiatrist and other therapists who taught me so willingly. They gave me a going away party and a beautiful briefcase, and I entered graduate school for yet another educational experience. My wife, Joanne, and I lived in an old house with our little boy where I traded my remodeling skills in lieu of rent. My teaching assistantship eliminated tuition fees, and we lived on essentially the $200 a month stipend that I received. Joanne also sewed beautiful tailor-made clothing for hard-to-fit women, allowing us to complete this step with no student loan debt. Incidentally, being a teacher in the classroom that I was part of my being a teaching assistant terrified me initially. I enrolled in the Dale Carnegie Human Relations course to help me with my confidence in public speaking. The help was so profound that I volunteered to be an assistant with them and had the privilege of continuing to go through the course many more times. Now, to complete the requirements for my master's in psychology, I was required to write a master's thesis. You know the drill. I did the research, wrote a thesis that was then read by five people. They gave me a nice certificate that hangs on my wall today. Did that prove my competence? 
as a psychologist or therapist? Not at all. But I had completed the requirements of that educational program, and I was on my way. After working approximately three months as a therapist at the Center for Human Understanding, how's that for a grandiose title? Uh, That was in Tustin, California. Three months, I realized I was bored out of my mind, sitting in a chair listening to rich kids' problems. I quickly left and reverted back to all those skills learned on the farm to provide handyman services to a ready audience in Southern California. I've never been concerned about having the ability to provide income because I have so many enriching experiences that prepared me with plenty of marketable skills. And I'll have to say, you know, a few of those came from sitting in a seat in a classroom. After a short time of installing ceiling fans, mowing yards, repairing toilets, washing windows, painting houses, I joined a friend in the used car business. It was a great relationship. He purchased the cars, reconditioned them, brought them back to the lot on a prime location in Anaheim, California, where I was responsible for selling them. Yes, as you're thinking, some family members questioned how I could walk away from my recently acquired master's degree. But did I really walk away? I mean, how does education prepare us for real life opportunities? Did my preparation at that point position me only for being a traditional counselor or therapist? Was my only option to sit in a chair with one person sitting across from me telling me how miserable they were? Let's think about my role in selling used cars. Is it possible I still used my education at that point? Now, here's an example. In my first month of selling cars, I had a young man walk on our lot, dressed casually in a well-worn t-shirt. Now, any experienced salesman would have prejudged him with the confidence he was not a serious buyer worthy of any investment of time. He did not currently even own a car. He was dressed poorly, spoke with difficulty. But I had learned how to listen, how to express empathy, and how to accept the person unconditionally. So I talked to this guy, showed him anything he was interested in. He was quickly drawn to a really beautiful Corvette, of course. I mean, wouldn't anyone be attracted to something out of their reach? He asked if he could take it for a test drive. And after verifying that he did have a driver's license, I agreed to take a ride with him driving. When we came back and I asked how he would be paying for the car if he decided to purchase it, he assured me he'd just pay for it. While still unsure where this was going, I took him in the office, wrote up a quick agreement, turned it around for him to sign. He signed his name, stood up, pulled up his t-shirt, and began pulling out stacks of $20 bills. He paid for the entire amount in cash on the spot. But now here's where it gets even more interesting. In the next 12 months, when you count brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, and nephews, I sold 14 cars to that one extended family. All because I treated one young man with courtesy, respect, and interest. Now, what do you think? Did I use my degree in psychology? Now, several years later, I decided to study for my doctoral degree. I enrolled in classes, eagerly immersed myself in the process of formalized study once again. I completed the entire program with flying colors. Then I met with my dissertation committee. Four very old guys met with me to outline the process. Having been through a similar scenario with my earlier degrees, I simply asked for clarification. A doctoral dissertation is not meant for reading by the common person. It must be written in a scholarly fashion with countless footnotes and references to other works. 
Upon completion, it would be read by these same four guys who would then hopefully give me yet another really nice piece of paper to hang in my wall. At that point, I summarized the options as I saw them. Number one, I could spend the next two years researching and writing that cumbersome document so these old guys would be impressed enough to give me that piece of paper. Or two, I could spend that same amount of time and effort researching and writing a book that would be readable by the average person and hopefully make me a million dollars or so as a result. Much to the chagrin of those four old guys, I chose option number two. The resulting book was the original edition of 48 Days to the Work You Love, and it's done exactly what I intended. By doing what I intended, that did not happen just by accident. I had observed that best-selling authors were very involved in the selling process. So I researched and went to a Megabook University event. Now, this is just a seminar. It's called a university, but just a seminar with Mark Victor Hansen, co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul in Los Angeles. For three days, Joanne and I sat there and listened to Mark and his guests share about how to generate sales for our books. I came back to Tennessee, did what he suggested, and then the next three years, took in over $2 million selling my little three-ring binder version of 48 Days to the Work You Love. That was before I even talked to a traditional publisher. I remember that little audio recording I mentioned, The Strangest Secret. The impact of that message continued to shape my life and choices. That recording became the first product of the company called Nightingale Conant, and they went on to produce hundreds of inspirational programs with those that I call the Masters of Achievement. I became an avid customer purchasing hundreds of programs like Lead the Field, The Psychology of Winning, How to Get Rich in America, See You at the Top, The Science of Personal Achievement, Seeds of Greatness. I attended seminars and workshops by those same authors and sought out new ones like Launch, Entree Leadership, Social Media Marketing World, LeaderCast, Experts Academy, and more. Now, one of the highlights of my life was when the folks at Nightingale Conant contacted me a few years ago. I'd never talked to them and was simply a loyal customer, but they said they had purchased my materials, had tested them on their audience and wanted me to come to Chicago and create a six hour audio program using my principles that we would call dream job. And what a thrill that was to work with them in that process and be included in that amazing group of masters of achievement. I've continued my lifelong love of reading, listening, and learning. Years ago, I made it a practice to spend at least two hours daily listening to or reading positive materials. That practice has given me access to the greatest thinkers of the world and an ongoing education that is current, practical, and tied directly to generating income in my business. My primary activities now are writing, speaking, and coaching but I've never had a class on writing, speaking, or coaching as any part of my academic degree programs. I've never had a business class, although today my business allows me a lifestyle enjoyed by very few people. I value having grown up on a farm. I love the times I've spent in the classroom. I love that time of selling cars. I love the time following that where I had an auto accessories business, a health and fitness center, sales training organization, and the opportunities I've had in coaching, speaking, and writing. No one piece of education prepared me for the rich opportunities I experience today. I've always loved the process of study because my goal was to get the knowledge and learning, not to get a piece of paper with my name on it. 
I've always viewed education as something that helps increase my options, broadens my horizons, and perhaps positions me as an expert in a given field. Framing it as such, one can easily see that education can occur in many, many ways. Sitting in a seat with 32 other people, regurgitating information fed from the professor may in fact be one of the poorer methods of becoming educated. So where do you think I got my education? If I depended on my academic degrees, would I really be qualified to write, speak, and coach? So let me ask you, what life experiences have been part of your education? Now I want to give you some steps to what I think are a real education. These are steps to an education you can do Right now, you can do this year things you can do to open the floodgates of new opportunity and new wealth. So here they are, 10 steps. Number one, read or listen to at least 12 great books. Now you can go, to, if you just send a blank email to reading at 48days.com, you'll get the list of books that I recommend and why. Number two, attend three or four seminars. Choose what you like, but go with an open mind I mean, I attend a lot of seminars every year. My goal is not to change my life with any one seminar, but to learn at least one great idea I can use. Number three, work in improving your emotional intelligence. Now, emotional intelligence, EQ, is the ability to use and manage your emotions in positive ways to relieve stress, communicate effectively, overcome challenges, and diffuse conflict. Your skill in this area will allow you to form healthier relationships, achieve greater success at work, and lead a more fulfilling life. And believe me, EQ will do more to open up opportunities for you than IQ will. Number four, listen to three or four informational on-demand radio programs or podcasts and read three or four blogs every week. You may be an audio or print learner, no right or wrong, just select what, what works for you. But don't deprive yourself of the wealth of education that's available simply by listening to the great programs that are out there. Number five, take two or three courses in areas of interest. You don't have to be accepted in, or lock in thousands of dollars in tuition. Just explore the many courses that give you marketable skills on sites like uh, Khan, Khan Academy, uh, lynda.com, udemy.com. And we've got some programs on there, but these sites have thousands of professional video courses covering almost every topic imaginable. Uh, many of these courses have certificates of completion to show adequate preparation for work in that area. And me, believe me, more and more employers are accepting these certificates as proof of having marketable skills. Number six, reach out to help someone else. I mean, there are people all around the world who are committed to living a better story. Helping them will help you feel connected to a larger life than what you have now. Number seven, acquire at least one new skill each year. I mean, each year, I select an area of interest, having nothing to do with business or making money, just something that I want to know more about. If it's astronomy or about the Jewish roots of our, our own faith, I mean, those are, there's lots of things that I've studied over the years just to acquire a new skill. Number eight, become comfortable with your presentation skills. I mean, no matter what your career or business, you must be comfortable presenting your ideas. It will do wonders for your confidence and self-esteem. 
You'll find it easier to complete a sales transaction, have conversations with family and friends, and find success in your career. Number nine, design your own health and fitness program. And success is never just about making money. If you deplete your physical resources, you'll fail at everything else. Make sure you're making deposits of success in this area every day. Number 10, plan two trips this year. And you can swap houses with someone anywhere in the world through programs like homeexchange.com or homelink.org. Airbnb, you can stay in people's really cool places all around the world at this point. You can rent a unique place from the owner, like a cottage in Ireland that we looked at recently for $280 a week. And there's all kinds of things you can do. Joanne and I go to Chicago right before Christmas every year. Easy to do. No one else is traveling right then. Hotels are cheap. Flights are cheap. I mean, lots of fun things. Just plan two trips every year. I'm sure you could probably add more examples of experiences in your life that have helped you get an education. With today's technology, you can listen to inspirational, uplifting material, you know, again, while cleaning the house or driving your car. I'm going to go through just some other kind of short tidbits in the remaining time that we have on today's podcast. Some time ago, I wrote a blog that got more response than possibly any blog I've ever written where I titled it 100% College Admission, How Sad. I talked about the fact that on a leisurely Sunday afternoon drive, Joanne and I passed one of the most prestigious private high schools in our area, and there was a sign, a big sign out in the front, proudly stating 100% college admission for our seniors, again. And I'll have to admit, I cringed at seeing that. Now, I know that any high school principal who doesn't claim this as his or her goal is likely to be accused of not having the student's best interest at heart and would probably be run out of town by indignant parents. But personally, I think there's a major elitism at play here. And ultimately, a lot of those students suffer as a result. Is our goal really to prepare every student for a life in a cubicle? I mean, in looking at my own grandchildren, I see those for whom I would weep at such a prospect. The elitism is in believing that every occupation pursued by a path outside of college is somehow lower and not a worthy pursuit for our students. We become a culture that looks down on labor and craftsman positions. So really, in this graduating class, we'll have no Ferrari mechanics, no sculptors, no heating and air conditioning specialist, no one I can contact to design another water feature on our property, no skilled carpenters, no stonemasons, no welders, no piano tuners. I mean, in the spring of this year, I had a young man come out to do a normal checkup on our air conditioning system. Now, this was just a checkup, no parts required. He was here less than two hours. My bill was $149. A couple days later, my little John Deere tractor was returned with new bearings in the front wheels. Total bill, $2,690.78. Most of that was labor, billed at $70 an hour. Now, at the same time, I happen to know a young attorney who's working part-time at Kinko's, $10 an hour to supplement his income. The heating air conditioning guy, tractor mechanic, $70 an hour. Now, if we consider our children to be smart and really want the best for them, should we not consider a broader range of occupational possibilities? 
Now, I have to admit, I've made a very good living working with people who at 45 years of age admit they're living someone else's dream. As we unpack that incongruity and begin to move toward an authentic life, all kinds of things come to the surface as meaningful work possibilities. I mean, pastors have become artists, dentists, forest rangers, and doctors, organic gardeners. Having the ability to go to college is not enough reason for doing so. There must be more of an alignment with a person's values, dreams, and passions. I've worked with countless professionals who have proven their academic ability to create a life they detest. I know a lot of us have been concerned about companies' liberal use of outsourcing. Many of the jobs college students train for can now easily be outsourced to China, Taiwan, or India. However, if I need my roof repaired or the drain unclogged or the lawn mowed or want another beautiful sculpture of a tree or an eagle on my property— I can't have someone in China provide that service. People with those kind of skills are immune from outsourcing. They have more stability and security. Well, as you know, it's been said, you can't hammer a nail over the internet. Let's stop depriving our children of their best options. I'd like to see that sign in front of that school say 60% college, 10% trade school, 10% continuing family businesses, 10% entrepreneurs, and 10% world travel to further clarify a career path. I mean, that would make me want to send my child there. What do you think? Would you agree that a goal of 100% college admission for any high school class is ridiculous? Well, think about it. Well, a couple other things here. I did another post not too long ago. I, could, I said, can I see your resume? I'm making paper airplanes. Well, it, it's almost that bad. I mean, a resume just doesn't have the value it once had. And Starbucks attracted 7.6 million job applicants over the last 12 months. Procter & Gamble got over a million applications last year for the 2,000 new positions they had. Google hired 7,000 people in a recent year after receiving over 2 million resumes. I mean, most companies don't even want your resume today. You know what companies do want to see? They want to see your online presence. What will someone see if they do an online search for you? If there's nothing there, you're non-existent in today's workplace. Only 19% of hiring managers at small companies say they look at the resumes they receive at all. I mean, there's a lot of things. Let's say I've got a note here somewhere about what they do at Google. Well, John Fisher, who's owner of a company in Colorado, says that a resume isn't the best way to determine whether a potential employee will be a good social fit for the company. Instead, his firm uses an online survey to help screen applicants. A current opening for an Adobe Illustrator expert asks applicants about their skills, but also asks questions such as, what's your ideal dream job? What's the best job you've ever had? Applicants have the option to attach a resume, but it's not required. Now, here's some of the things you can do to create a presence for yourself that people are going to be able to look at. Create a LinkedIn profile and write a blog, write several blogs, do at least one a month. So you start having a body of content out there so people know how you think and what you value. Join a couple networking sites like 48days.net and have a Facebook profile. I mean, you don't have to spend countless hours every day on those things, but you got to have some kind of a, a profile out there. If you're going to be a player today, well, how do we get job security? What is that? 
today. I mean, don't the smartest people with the best degrees always get ahead? Is it luck that allows someone to get hired? Why do some folks get multiple job offers when others are convinced the economy is bad and no one is hiring? Now, I just recently had a young gentleman in the banking industry invite me to lunch. I'll call him John. I met John about 10 years ago when he was just a teller, and I hadn't seen him since then. But the day of our lunch, he called me and asked me if he could take me to lunch. The day of our lunch, he pulled up the restaurant at a gorgeous new Infinity, had on a stunning suit, and told me about his new position as the community director of a very powerful local bank. I didn't know a whole lot about what had transpired for him in those last 10 years, but I did know he was in an industry that had been struggling with well-publicized downsizings and terminations. However, it was easy to see why John had excelled. Every encounter I observed at lunch was courteous and affirming for the other person. From the greeter to the servers to the random people walking by, each one received a great smile and a sincere thank you for their contribution, no matter how small or insignificant. I didn't have to ask him about his degrees, certifications, or inside favors to understand why his career had soared. He doesn't have to game his way to keep his job. In fact, he told me of the constant offers he was receiving from competitors who had seen his success, and he was making more money than he'd ever dreamed of just a few years before. He had guaranteed his position, not through manipulation or asserting his rights or having a contract, but by being a person everyone wants in their team. Now, that may sound strangely familiar. I mean, there's some things out of a book written back in 1937, right after the Great Depression, Well, you know what book I'm referring to, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, the the simple things in there, like become genuinely interested in other people. Smile. Remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest sound, most important sound in any language. Be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. I was just um, talking with a lady just a few days ago, and She's a celebrity. I won't mention her name. Don't need to. But she, after talking to her for about 10 minutes, she said, you are so present when I talk to you. She said, I talk to the people. They're looking over my shoulder and around the room. She says, you are just totally here. She says, I really appreciate that. And I thought, well, you know, that's just something that I learned to do. I know how effective it is. Make the other person feel important. Do it sincerely. Now, I have no idea if John, this young man I'm talking about, after all my encounter with him there, I have no idea if he even has a college degree. But I know how his value would rank against most MBA graduates. Those little principles of connecting well with other people will do more to open doors of opportunity than being in the right place at the right time. They'll do more than luck, degrees, or a stellar GPA. Unfortunately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to take out a student loan or get a special break from Uncle Harry to start using them to your advantage. That's how you get job security. Not too long ago, I answered a question from a young lady who said she was going back to get an MBA. And like the opening question that I had here, she's going back to get an MBA because she was confident that was a way to open more doors. And I suggested that perhaps she do other things as well to make herself a top candidate. And I wrote to her, I said, I commend you on moving forward, not being content with the status quo. You're right to question what it is that separates a resume person from somebody who really gets ahead. It's never just a matter of having the right degrees. Actually, it's less that now than ever before. Here at 48 Days, we've engaged a social media director, 
product fulfillment manager, webmaster, graphic designers, blog coach, podcast consultant, speech coach, marketing director, and several other positions. In not one case did I ask for a resume or even inquire about degrees or certification. Here's what I'm likely to look for. Now listen to things that I'm likely to look for if I want somebody to be part of our team. Notes of recommendation from three people I know and respect. A recent project that I can review. Media buzz about what that person's already done. Leadership of a group on a social networking site. A regular blog that's compelling and engaging. A high emotional quotient versus a high IQ, just like I described from John. A high EQ, emotional quotient. Well, you might say, geez, I don't have any of those things. Well, then that begs the question, why would someone see you as an outstanding candidate? Unfortunately, the MBA has become a very common and a very generic degree. No one knows what it really means other than you have shown the discipline to stick with the program for a couple years. It's also the degree, unfortunately, that is most often added to a resume dishonestly. I mean, seldom are degrees checked, and there's thousands of people who have added MBA or other degrees to their resume, hoping for a little extra edge. But I'd encourage you to be building your reputation in ways like those noted above. You know, that I just mentioned, that'll get attention and open doors all around you. The days of a great resume being enough are over. You have to be remarkable in some way. One quick last thought here. We're going to wrap up. We recognize that a lot of things have a shelf life. I mean, the length of time that foods, beverages, drugs, and other items are given before they're considered unsuitable for sale, use, or consumption And on that expiration date, those items are seen to be of little use or even dangerous. Now, we know that much of what a college freshman learns will be obsolete before they graduate. So why would we, in a rapidly changing workplace, think that the value of a diploma will last forever? The expiration date of pharmaceuticals specifies the date the manufacturer guarantees the full potency and safety of a drug. Why don't universities specify the length of time a degree will be fully applicable and useful? And when I graduated from the Ohio State University, I was required to take a computer course to be eligible for a BA degree. I took Fortran. Now, the best I can remember, it was developed in 1958 as an early version of programming. Today, it's right up there with the rotary phone in terms of usefulness. I mean, my diploma should have estimated the value of that to expire in maybe 10 years max. Imagine you have a degree in biology. Will the knowledge we have now be current 10 years from now? Of course not. I mean, your diploma has a built-in expiration date. We just don't like to be upfront about that. Universities don't want to stamp on your degree good for the next 15 years. As a result, we pretend to do great work with the knowledge we gathered 20 or 30 years ago. And as a result, we often stifle innovation and opportunity. I know there's a pressure in having the degree to get a return on your investment to justify the time and expense. But new opportunities appear every day. The workplace sure doesn't stay the same, and you don't stay the same. You might discover and develop skills that would lend themselves to a completely unrelated career path. Well, people feel stuck because of too much education, because of not enough education. Of course, I have encountered a whole lot of people who are convinced they're not trained enough to be candidates for what their hearts are calling them to. But we need to broaden our understanding of what constitutes education. Education. Look at what it is that you bring to the table. 
What have been the things that have added to your education? I've shared a lot about my background, the things that I value. I remember a little of what I learned sitting in a classroom, but I've had a rich variety of life experiences that have added to my being able to walk into new opportunities today. Take a broader view of what education is. You know, there've been so many songs that have been written about, about (laughs) the jobs, about education. I'm going to play one quick clip here and we're going to wrap up. You'll recognize this one. You know, I don't even remember what the... Oh, I do remember what the name of this is. I absolutely do. About a young guy going to get a job, pretended to be something that he was not. How often have we heard that story? A whole lot of times. Absolutely. Check this out. And the sign said, long-haired, freaky people need all to fly. Certainly not the first time misrepresentation getting a job, but not the last. We don't want that. We want authenticity. We want fit. We want you to be doing something that fits you, something that embraces the real education that you have. So the next time you're in any situation, people ask you about your background, you can say, yes, I do have an education. Well, a little bit different today. Response to so many of your questions. Hope that sheds a little light on this issue of having an education. I hope it helps you hold your head up a little higher as you see the opportunities to find or create your own work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable.